welcome to this episode of Rails to Nowhere. I am Eleanor, your host. I am joined, as always, by Simon. Hello, I'm Simon, a student of mobility and transport history at the University of York and an occasional train driver. And for this episode, we will be discussing the one and only British Rail APT. For I think is one of the most interesting trains to ever be dreamt up in people's wildest dreams. Before we get going, I would like to say thank you to the person who has already subscribed to our Patreon. Yes! I was not expecting this. Uh, thank you for yeah. helping make this uh, atrocity. Now this. <laughs> we would have thanked you in the bonus episode. But we recorded that before the first episode. Yes, because so wibbly wobbly, this is our, timey wimey. This is our first recording since going live with the podcast, and our first recording since someone signed up to the patrons. So, thank you to all the people who have listened. Yes, and thank you to the person who has signed up for the patron. If you'd like to get more hopefully excellent bonus episodes like the one we produced last month then also you can sign up to the patron and we promise that their release will be more coordinated than last time yes um and if you wish to have your name shouted out we have a tier for that we also do extra bonus blog content i've certainly had an interesting post to make about researching for this episode as simon has also put some stuff up and we hope that people will enjoy that as well and it'll make you think oh that's worth your i don't know beer money (laughs) but i think without further ado we're going to take a look at the apt the advanced passenger train yes So what is the APT? We will get to that. uh, But first, a bit of exposition. Because on the railway, there has always been a desire to go faster. Since the beginning, the speed record has been traded around from line to line, locomotive to locomotive, and country to country. Since the very first record of about 5 miles an hour, things have only increased, going from 5 to 15, 15 to 30, and all the way up to the current British speed record, for steam, at least, of 126 miles per hour, which is, as we know, held by 4468 Mallard. And it's a record that still stands till this day. Yes, we're thinking about the race to the north, the LMS and LNER rivalry at this point. Also the rivalry between the British and the German railways, because you've got the German railways throwing out quite fast trains at this stage. Yes, we, we are certainly trading speed records back and forth. Things are getting quite fast however today the speed records are a little bit more blurred we've got newer technologies like maglev which are starting to take on the conventional steel wheel steel rail train in 2015 the japanese prototype maglev train hit 375 miles an hour or 603 kilometers an hour while over in europe a modified tgv holds the conventional speed record at 574 kilometers an hour or 356 miles per hour While these record-breaking speeds have been reached, most high-speed railways only run at about 320 kilometres an hour, which is 186 miles per hour due to comfort, power, overhead line equipment, signalling and other physical constraints. So there are many benefits to high-speed rail, which include faster journey times, a reduced need for domestic air travel, direct links between the urban cores and reduced road and rail congestion. The first nation to truly identify this and build what we would consider now a modern high-speed railway was Japan with the Tokaido Shinkansen, which opened in 1964 to great public interest. 
Trains ran at a maximum speed of 130 miles an hour, cutting journey times between the two largest cities, Tokyo and Osaka, from 6 hours 40 minutes to just 3 hours and 10 minutes. And over the next 20 years, other nations would follow suit, opening dedicated high-speed lines, where the speeds would steadily climb over the next half century. These lines obviously had represented a new way of travelling in style, comfort, and a new philosophy of how you should run a railway. Yes, and I think the dawn of high-speed rails quite interesting. Um, there's certainly, listen out for it, there will definitely be an episode on the Tokaido Shinkansen coming up at some point. Meanwhile, in Britain, things were a bit more complicated. It was accepted that there was a need to change how the rails were run. Up until 1966, the railway was more or less thought of in the same way that it had been before the creation of the motorway as it was really the only viable long-distance travel that you had within the country besides ships and maybe the personal motor car. There were limited express trains and travelling long-distance required a lot of planning because the trains were only running a few times a day. The motorway changed this because obviously you now had private companies offering coaches and the private motor vehicle could now travel at 70 miles an hour up the country without really anything in its way. Yes. This triggered a rethinking at British Rail. Yeah, like the the opening of the motorways are a major shift in how transport happened in this country. Like last month, we talked a little bit about how motor travel began to impede on the railways market share during the 1920s and 30s. The opening of the first motorways with the Preston Bypass in 1958 and the expansion of the motorway network after that you really start seeing a boom in motor travel for longer distance stuff. So last month we talked a little bit about short distance travel. We're now getting into the point where the railways are starting to be hurt by long distance motorways. And domestic airlines, as we say, there are starting to be domestic flights. They're more premium still at this stage, but it's a growing market. They very much started sliding into the place of the Pullman trains and things like that. These changes made British Rail rethink how they were dealing with express trains and long-distance travel. The electrification of the West Coast Main Line up to Manchester allowed for a fast, frequent and reliable service that was regularly hitting 100 miles an hour. The ability to turn up and go was now possible for long-distance travel, The idea that you can just turn up at a station, purchase a ticket and be on a train within an hour was now very much a thing that was possible. And this long distance travel between the major urban centres along the West Coast made the immense cost of the electrification just worth it in terms of the ridership it brought back. Meanwhile, the East Coast, there was a difference The East Coast, they did not electrify as quickly, and as a result, we got the Class 55 Deltic, a small fleet of diesel locomotives based around the one and only Napier Deltic engine, which was actually commonly found in ships up to this point. Regularly was running between London and York and Edinburgh at 100 miles an hour. Meanwhile, the West Coast saw the Class 86, an electric locomotive that was capable of hitting 100 miles per hour and later on 110, making this modern form of travel more and more attainable. This, however, wasn't deemed fast enough. There was some debate as to what to do, but above 100 mile per hour running was desired, especially seeing what was going on in France and Japan. Building a new line, similar to what the French and the Japanese were doing, was dismissed due to cost and 
a lack of British Rail's management being willing to spend on such an ambitious project. And instead, a focus on upgrading the existing network followed. I think it's also worth pointing out that in Britain, the railways were considered to be a business that needed to be making money and making a profit. Whereas in France and Japan, there was more of a sense that the railways were a social good. It's one of those things I often point out to people when we're talking about British Rail, that people think BR was a social good project. It wasn't. It was from 1948 mandated that it would be making a profit by 1955, which it wasn't. We'll touch on that more in the future when we do a inevitable episode on the modernisation plan. Yes, I, we will touch on it a bit now. As part of this upgrade plan that followed, an investigation into reduction of track wear was pursued, and tilting trains showed a loss of promise in being able to increase the cornering speed of a train as well as maintain or reduce the existing track wear, which was an issue becoming more and more common. It was especially noted in Japan on the Shinkansen, where track wear on this brand new line was much greater than the classic network, despite the fewer trains due to the much higher speed and higher forces that resulted on the track. An interesting thing at this point, of course, is that part of the work to improve ride quality and reduce track wear came from research done at the Rail Technical Centre onto the high-speed freight wagon. Mm. And very Interestingly, that means that the research that spawned the advanced passenger train had a second branch, which, dare I say the words, spawned everyone's favourite local, regional and commuter train that should never have existed, the Pacer. Yes, it is amazing that these two trains share a common heritage. Yeah, it's one of those things that I both love and hate about British Rail history, yes. that the Pacer and the APT are cousins. Yes, very um, much In so. many ways. Yes. Because they are spawned from the same research into freight wagons, and they take that in very different directions. One becomes a very interesting, high-speed, amazing passenger transport machine, and the other is a bus duct-taped onto a freight wagon with an engine bolted underneath it. But equally, from a socio-political point of view, both are actually very interesting from a point of view about why the policies were pursued mm. and equally why they did or didn't fail as policies. Yes. And in many ways, the reasons that the Pacer succeeded as a train, in so much as a Pacer could be claimed to have succeeded as a train, <laughs> but in many ways... In as far as you can claim a pacer succeeded as a train, it did so for pretty much the same reasons that the APT failed. Yes. And I find that quite interesting. Yes. As well, that you have these two very these two trains that are very different, but have originated from the same place in terms of the research into rolling stock behavior and train characteristics that become very different things and then succeed or fail for the same reasons, but they have opposite outcomes because of the nature of what they are. Yes. As a result of this need to go above 100 miles per hour without buying a new railway, essentially, the Advanced Passenger Train project was born. It is important to note that the APT was not 
a standalone project and instead was just one project being pursued as part of a wider remit of ideas of British Rail. Obviously, we had, as I discuss- we just discussed, the high-speed freight wagon and the pacer train. But APT was also coupled along with a new signalling system as well as an investigation into alternative forms of transport. Documents within the National Archives show that there was a significant interest in something called a tracked hovercraft, very similar to the aerotrain concept being developed in France at the time. While these were eventually dropped due to their impracticality, it is very important to remember that APT was much like the modern day HS2, up against unusual and semi-science fiction technologies. If you want to see a tracked hovercraft, you can, though, because there's still one in Peterborough at the Nen Valley Railway. Yes, Excellent is. day out, the Nen Valley Railway, and you can see the tracked hovercraft at Peterborough Station. Yes, and the reason I mention HS2 is because HS2 does play into this story in a very roundabout way. Well, and I mean, obviously, because in essence, the alternative to the APT is, is HS2, HS2, which would have been HS1 mm. at the time. But realistically, the APT comes around because back in the 1960s, we're reluctant to build high speed rail. If you go digging, you can find plans for a potential, not alignment, but route map for a new high speed railway for Britain. And it is eerily similar to the modern HS2. It's almost like we should have built it. Well, we're coming back to things we discussed in the bonus episode last time about how we look back on this history and we see things we should have done before and learn from those mistakes of not doing that. But I do think it's very interesting that in the 1960s, the preliminary ideas of what a high-speed rail network would look like are pretty much what we're getting from hs2 Mm. obviously they weren't as fleshed out as hs2 is this is like just lines on a map between population centers not the the concepts of which population centers do we want to connect with a high-speed rail network but you look at that and it's oh yeah that's the same Mm. set of population centers that we are now building 50 years later 60 years later 60 years later we are now building the railway that in the 1960s british rail said we need to build and actually as friend of the podcast gareth dennis will point out robert stevenson was pointing out in the 1860s that we should be building yes so 120 years later, we are now building the railway that actually we've known we should be building for 120 years. Yes. And it's also very interesting that even back in the 60s, this debate over uh, actual machines, to quote friend of the show Gareth again, this debate between actual machines, the railway, and FM technology, which um, f***ing magic it, in the form of the tracked hovercraft and now the exact same debate is coming up with hs2 versus a hyperloop system when in this episode after about 20 minutes of recording i'm going to actually start talking about the apt itself i intend to look at a couple of parts of apt here i will be looking at some of the interesting technologies that were included on board including a more in-depth look at this new signaling system which was initially known as the wiggly wire the evolution of the Wiggly Wire into CABT and other provisions 
that were evolved from APT's new high-speed running on the existing network, as well as the pressure put on it by the high-speed train. Yeah, because it's, I think, important to point out that the technological and signalling hurdles to running faster on an existing railway are significant. Yes, you cannot just make a train go faster. Yeah, you can run trains quite quickly. As we've pointed out, you can run trains up to like 400 miles an hour if you really wanted to. And you can do that relatively easily and relatively safely on a new build and dedicated system. But trying to do that on a conventional system, you've got massive technological and logistical problems to deal with because you've got to have a system that can both support your 50 mile an hour, 70 to 70 mile an hour freights. And now this new, well, at this stage, we're talking about a potentially 160, 170 mile an hour train. Because at this point, BR's still looking at whether APT could in fact reach speeds of up to 160 to 170 miles an hour. Obviously, it doesn't in the end, but that's the hope. We are very much looking at going as fast as possible without having to build a new straight piece of railway. Yes. I'm going to start off by first of all outlining the APTs, because APT went through several iterations that were considered for service to varying degrees. The APTE, the four-coach experimental train that was powered by gas turbines. Yeah, and that's the small one that you see pictures of. The next one was APTP, three prototype 12 plus two car electric units that were powered by two central electric power cars, obviously, that split the train in twain. Yes, essentially it's two six car trains either side of two locomotives. And again, this is one that was built. APTS was the next one that was dreamt up, which was the APT Squadron, which was a one plus eight and a DVT or a one plus nine and a DVT or a one plus ten and a DVT. It was electric. So this and, is very similar to the 91. Yeah, very similar to Mark your class 91 layout. Mark IV set. Yeah. You then had APTU. It was an electric train that was very similar to essentially a 91, the Mark IV coaches, and then a 91, but it tilted. There are a couple of other things which included APTD, a development train very similar to APTP, but was made with Mark IV coaches. And finally, as I said earlier about APTP, how we'll circle back to this, APTQ, a proposal to convert the three APTPs into six trains, requiring only a DVT to be built. Yes, so looking at the source that shows the formations, you've got the six mm. carriages of your classic APTP, but then you've got the power car, and then where you'd normally have the other half of the train set, you've just got a DVT to give a driver's cab. Yes. Which is all very interesting, because again, we're dealing with some interesting aspects of regulations that BR had to play with at this time, because of course there were the well-known issues around the need to put the power cars in the middle, which I know Ella wants to come back and talk about in a minute, but also slightly less well-known, there were issues at this time about the possibility of having a propelled passenger car at the lead of a train. There have been a couple of incidents throughout the time of the development of the APT that caused issues of that, notably the Polmont rail crash. There was also the regulations around putting passengers in the front of a vehicle going above 100 miles per hour. Yes. There were other regulations there as well. And there were some other proposals from the chief mechanical and electrical engineers, which included a version for the Channel Tunnel and a diesel version for the Southern Region. And this is from June 1977. And this is obviously, at this point, the Channel has kind of come back as a thing. 
that was being considered yes. two years later. We forget that the channel tunnel that was built that was proposed through the 1980s was the second modern attempt to get a channel tunnel built. There was an earlier push in the 1960s and 70s to get a channel tunnel built. So now we're going to move into a bit of technical and we're going to move into, I'm going to start with Siglinks. This is what I've ended up doing the most research on because it is a rabbit hole and a half. Most railways around the world quickly came to the conclusion that the running of trains at anything greater than about 201 kilometers an hour, that's 125 miles an hour for those playing at home, while using conventional signals was dangerous. This comes from issues of being able just to cite and observe the aspect correctly. Yeah, we're talking about having the driver be able to see the signal long enough. Obviously, drivers are expected to have a certain amount of time where they can see the signal as as they approach it so that you can respond to it. And the faster you're going, the further away that signal needs to be when you first see it so that you can have that sighting time. But then you're coming up to the point of filament bulbs and the level of visibility you have of those at that greater distance. Again, it's one of those sort of everything feeds into itself to a degree the sighting times were set based on how far away you could actually see a filament bulb and be able to act on the information given on that and you can't move that further away and still be able to make out the aspect clearly but also you're talking about geometry of the track you're talking about curves and tunnels and overbridges which will obstruct your view of a signal as well and so making greater visibility and greater sighting times begins to become quite a complex civil engineering job as well yes and As a result, we get this upper limit. To combat this, the Japanese developed their automatic train control system, where speed targets are displayed as part of the driving machine interface and take the place of traditional line-side signals. And obviously, this allows the driver, on board a Shinkansen at least, to know the maximum permitted speed that their their train is allowed to travel at, as well as gives them a much larger notification of an aspect change. And you're no longer relying on a driver remembering what they saw before as well you've got repeater in the cab now which of course is the other issue at really high speeds is you want that accuracy of the driver being certain of what it is they've been authorized to do you don't want a driver flying past a double yellow aspect at 150 miles an hour and not registering that Not suggesting that my driver colleagues regularly forget about double yellow aspects but you don't want that risk And of course, this Japanese system also includes an aspect of automatic train protection as well, which means you've got the intervention to prevent signals passed at danger events as well. Can anyone tell that I'm a huge advocate for in-cab signaling? (laughs) And to head off some of the comments that we will inevitably get from some people about, oh, we have the AWS system. The AWS system is merely a, you have passed something that is not a green and also has issues of even being able to be picked up at certain high speeds just by nature of how quickly the set-reset process has to take place. The British began investigating an in-cab signalling system in tandem with the APT project. 
The original reasons for developing this system lay more with the ability to stop a train from high speed before it has a chance to hit the train in front than with the need to develop a new signalling system per se, because traditional 4-aspect signalling was quite good at this point. Traditional BR4-aspect signalling could safely provide, with the existing braking technology at the time, safe running up to 125 miles per hour, and is still used today to regulate trains on 125 miles an hour lines. Because of this need to develop a new signalling system, British Rail dreamt up something that was initially known as the wiggly wire. And the earliest form of this system was, it's essentially described as follows, which is uh, some form of antennae laid between the running rails, most likely in the form of cable loops that would transmit a signal to the train. The An in-cab display that displays the following information, the train speed, the permitted speed based on the line speed, the target speed based on the position of, the, of other trains on the route and the target distance, how far until the next restriction was to take over, as well as the next line side signal aspect, because this was partly developed as an extension to the existing four aspect signaling system. In many ways, this is very similar to the German Lienenzugbeeinflussung system, which is also known as LZB for those playing at home, and as well as a combination with the southern region AWS system, which was essentially repeating aspects in the cab. So yes, so this is very much an overlay on the existing signalling system, so you'd be able to have fitted and non-fitted trains running. I don't know if that's yes. a question you know the answer to. I'm unsure as to if they would allow for it because the equipment did take up the space that was required by AWS ramps but in theory you could be running fitted and non-fitted trains over the same lines without a problem much like you can run a non-fitted LZB train over an LZB line it is just repeating aspects in a slightly different way into the cab yeah and to a degree given how early in concept this was and the limited records it's hard to know yes whether the idea was that maybe you'd be able to run fitted and unfitted trains and some at that point unspecified and unworked out solution to how to make aws and the wiggly wire working the yes. same location would be attempted to make that happen Yes, and I'd also like to point out that Wiggly Wire had other goals as well. It eventually got renamed to TACT, Total um, Automatic Train Control, and mm -hmm. then to BRATO, British Rail Automatic Train Operation. This will be discussed in more detail in the bonus episode, which I have still yet to write, don't tell anyone. But <laughs> it's <That's> very right. <laughs> much an interesting and in many ways, novel solution to the problem that is, how do we run a train at high speed? And I've seen some very interesting documents in the National Archives. But despite this promising research where you had this very accurate and very safe signaling system that could even intervene in an overspeed or in a signal pass to danger, British Rail Management deemed it as too expensive and this is the story of the rail technical center yes this generally. is in general the story of rtc who were doing incredible work at this time only to be hamstrung by british rail management going this is too expensive and the thought in 1976 when this kind of died was that no new signaling systems shall be installed and instead an alternative was to be found because yes and this is very much where 
aspects of the HST start to come in as well yes. because the the design of the HST entirely revolves around being able to stop trains from 125 or even actually 150 because let's not forget the the HST is actually capable of 140 to 150 mile an hour running and has done that but the hst's design was constrained by the desire to stop from 125 miles an hour to zero within the existing blocks designed for conventional trains running at 100 miles an hour Mm. so to tell the drivers that they were allowed to run at increased line speeds on the existing signaling system which is now the signaling system that is to be used an alternative had to be found and this came in the form of something called the control apt system it was very much an advisory system and was not an authority to move and not an authority to go fast instead All it did was communicate the maximum speed an APT driver was allowed to achieve on a particular stretch of line, so long as the line side signals permitted. This is very similar to enhanced speed restrictions that the Pendolinos and Voyagers use on the West Coast Main Line. Yes, this is essentially EPS in the cab. The transponders on the track were passive and powered by a radio signal of a passing train and would communicate the fastest speed to a small permitted speed display in the cab. It's just the speed board presented in the cab, in essence. Yes, it's very much that. Um, It would also ensure the train would not exceed this maximum permitted speed, but wouldn't prevent any signal pass at danger or anything like that. Because, again, this is just an advisory system, not a authority system. So by February 1983, the Wiggly Wire system was essentially dead. But this Wiggly Wire system was still kept about in the backs of people's minds, and was intended to go on the final APTU train set. I'll be discussing the Wiggly Wire and other signalling systems in Britain and abroad in the bonus episode. If you want to hear it and hear me go off on tangents and rants about why in-cab signalling is better and all sorts about British Rail and this weird ATO system that they were coming up with, uh, head over to patreon.com slash rails to nowhere and sign up. Access to the bonus content starts at £2 a month, where you also get access to an extra content blog and early access to the main episodes if you subscribe to the library ticket tier. APT is most famed for tilting. Everyone has seen the posters of APT going around corners at high speed, leaning in like a motorcycle and looking absolutely wonderful while it does it. There's a few reasons as to why you want to do tilt. These reasons include you can go faster around bends, obviously, a more comfortable ride for passengers, and the one and only smooth, quiet, and altogether delightful experience as felt aboard APT. Cue rattling cups. However, <laughs> yes, there are problems with tilting. <laughs> the original APT system was developed aboard something called ABT POP, which was essentially just a couple of test coaches with some hydraulic rams on it. And this system was refined aboard the APTE. Hydraulic rams on each bogey would hold the train in the upright position around a central pivot point. And these were replaced in this kind of H formation where the rams would kind of connect to the bogey on each side and would push up and down and it would allow the train to tilt. So you've got a central pivot point and these two rams that must remain pressurised. The system was controlled by sets of accelerometers on the top of the train and in the bottom of the train. 
And as a non-zero lateral acceleration was detected, so the centrifugal forces you feel as a passenger as you go round a bend, the train would use these hydraulics rams to tilt the coaches over and lean into the bend and zero out those forces and hopefully result in this smooth, quiet and altogether delightful experience while on the train. However, this system has some issues. The fact that the hydraulic rams are required to remain pressurised to keep the coach upright because of the central pivot point and no self-writing mechanism would mean that the coaches would lean over if the system failed, potentially into the dynamic envelope of another passing train, which is not good. The tilt packs were also located in the power cars of the experimental train, which resulted in difficulty maintaining them and replacing them throughout the development and testing and service life of the E-train. The P-train, so the prototype, did have a different tilt system that was far more advanced and fixed a lot of the key flaws that were evident with the E-system. Rather than having the tilt jacks hold the train up, the train was held up by springs and this would mean the train would return to the vertical should the rams fail. Okay, so it's an active pull the train over passive it springs back up system. very much the springs would hold the train upright which meant the carriages could wobble while in service but then you'd lower the speed obviously should the tilt system fail because that's what lets you go at high speed. And instead, these hydraulic rounds were moved to a more horizontal position where they pushed and pulled against uh, the central frame of the car rather than holding it up. And this allowed the train to tilt. Um, Okay, yes. yes. So if the rams aren't working properly, you might have a bit of a wobbly ride, but your carriage will will be able to be righted. Yes, and this is where your dampeners also come into the mix. They keep it all nice and more or less vertical should these systems fail and not let the carriage fall into the dynamic envelope of a passing train. And they also move the tilt packs on the train. They move them to the underframe of each coach, meaning that it was way easier to maintain and replace a faulty unit. In many ways, it was more like how Viva Rail does the batteries on and the engines on their Class 230. It's a module that you can unplug, yes. pull out on a forklift, and then forklift in a new module that works while you fix your broken one. Yes. And as a system, this was quite reliable. It worked reasonably well. Now, as we know, there were issues uh, relating to it being rushed into service and not tuned properly. And we see this, obviously, with the media runs that occurred where media got on board very drunk and felt a bit nauseated when the system wasn't working at its actual potential because it wasn't tuned right and needed some refinement, shall we say. There are some other interesting side effects of this tilt system, including the pantograph on board has an anti-tilt tilting system which sounds a bit ridiculous, but as the coach tilts over, the pantograph tilts in the opposite direction, so it remains in contact with the wire. And there are some other minor workarounds you have to make aboard a tilting train to make it functional and not just kind of break. The next interesting development on ABT was this hydrokinetic braking system, which is a very interesting solution to the problem that came about as a result of not wanting to re-signal the West Coast mainline. Yeah, so here we get into the point of being able to stop within existing braking distances. For those who don't know, a train is a very difficult thing to stop. You have very little resistance between the running wheel and the rail, 
because it's steel on steel, so the thing will just slide. It's got a lot of momentum behind it. A train will easily plow through a car, as you've seen many a time on various TV programs. There's a lot of energy there, and you can't just stop it. Even at low speeds, they have a surprising amount of momentum. Like Even when you're just out on the depot doing like five miles an hour, if you just put it in coast, it will roll a surprisingly long distance. Um, even just from like five miles an hour with no power on, there's a lot of momentum in a train. This is where we get back to our problem of signalling. Because of these signalling limitations that were imposed by not re-signalling the West Coast mainline, a vastly superior braking system was going to be required if APT was to be stopped within these traditional blocks. Yes. A traditional UK signalling block is about 1.1 kilometres, and Mm -hmm. a Class 87 with a rake of Mark 3s could safely stop from 110 miles per hour within this distance. That's within the 2.2 kilometre double aspect. Four aspect signalling area. Yeah. Um, APT, using the same disc brakes that were on Mark 3s, would not be able to stop within this distance because the energy cannot be dissipated fast enough. And it's important to note there that disc brakes are involved on Mark 3 because you also have tread brakes, which are a different kettle of fish altogether and do not perform as well. To resolve this, APT had a three-brake system. You had a rheostatic, which is the electric brake. You had a hydrokinetic brake. And a friction brake, which is obviously disc brake or tread brake braced, depending on what you're going with. A rheostatic brake worked on APT by placing a load across the traction motors, and this would be a very heavy resistive load. So big fat resistors inside the power car. This meant that all of a sudden they become generators rather than motors, because if you put a motor, you can do this at home. If you have a motor and you have a light, a little bulb you can just wire them up and turn the motor and it will create energy and the light might light up if it's like a little led you've probably done this in physics actually a large amount of energy all of a sudden is being transferred from electrical energy in the motors well kinetic energy in the motor being spun into electrical energy and then dissipated off as heat energy over these resistors and this slows the train this works at high speed for the power cars and is often used today on modern trains as a way of saving energy and power is often also returned to the overhead or third rail system in a lot of modern electric installations because it's free energy you may as well use it the trailer cars of ABDE, however, used a different solution, and this solution was carried forward in a way. So this was a hydrokinetic brake, which is essentially a water mill that has fluid pump fluid in the opposite direction that the axle is rotating. This creates a massive brake force at that axle, and meant that ABDE could be stopped from, its at that point, its design speed of 150 miles an hour within your standard 2.5 kilometres, roughly. However... Hydrokinetics have a big issue. It's a very laggy brake. You'd put the brake yes. on and you've got to wait for a lot of air pressure to be used to spin up a turbine, which is basically a water pump. And you've got to wait for that water to then get up to pressure and start actually applying a force on the brakes. Later on, disc brakes would start to be able to perform in a similar level without lag, but this is getting into more modern eras. There are other issues with hydrokinetic brake too, which include it's prone to freezing. Obviously in cold weather, in which is a big issue in the UK with Scotland, water does like to freeze. And 
even with a water glycol mixture, which would reduce the freezing point of water to below zero, you couldn't get the temperatures, like that freezing point, low enough to really be usable in Scotland, especially if you left a train overnight in a depot. The temperature could get low enough that your mixture would freeze and the train would be unable to move because the, the brakes are frozen solid or the liquid would not be able to get up to enough pressure because it's too viscous and you wouldn't have the brake force when you needed it. Yes. There was also an issue with the way that the axle was designed for APT. It was a tubular axle and it could result in basically total destruction of the system in a derailment which is an issue that you have on experimental trains. That sounds suboptimal. It is quite suboptimal when your braking system is destroyed when you come off the track. APTP somewhat resolved some of the issues. You still had your laggy issue and you still would have the issue that you, you could freeze the brakes solid in very cold weather. But they did resolve the issue with the tubular axle, instead moving to a conical axle that was much more resilient because you would essentially have less chance of it impacting the running rail, which is what caused this basically destruction of the axle because it was quite a fragile thing. Yep. And despite these two quite advanced braking systems being implemented, the, the rear static and the hydrokinetic brake, neither is particularly effective at low speeds just because of the lag on the hydrokinetic and the lack of really any power being generated by your motors at low speeds. So yes. as a result, on APT generally about 30 miles an hour or less, you would use a traditional friction brake to stop the train. This could be in the form of normal disc brakes or tread brakes, and it varied depending on the unit that was being built and tested at the time. But that's the story of the hydrokinetic brake, which is a very interesting braking system, don't get me wrong, but it's flawed, shall we say. <laughs> there are a couple of other oddities that I found while researching APT, this is now like the weird end zone. Um, APTE had a speedometer that read in kilometers an hour rather than miles an hour. I don't know why. I have not found out why. There's, I have not found anything to do with it. I've just seen photographs of the cab with a kilometer an hour speedometer in it. No explanation. Oh. Is this to do with the wiggly wire? I don't know. It would be most likely to do with the wiggly wire because at this point, a lot of engineering at RTC was taking place in metric, entirely in metric. Yes. And while, yes, you still have imperial units in miles and chains and miles an hour and so on being used, if you go and actually look, most things are now set in metric units. This is certainly the case on the London Underground, but is also the case in a lot of other cases. Like track gauge at this point was 1,332 millimetres. Yes, track gauge has been quite some time ago redefined as a metric. Yes, it is figure. traditionally defined as 1,335 millimetres for standard gauge. However, British Rail at this point was messing about with making it a bit thinner at 1,332 millimetres. Friend of the show, Gareth Dennis, did an excellent video on why that is. Yes. Yes. Other weird things was APTE had a very modern crumple zone for its driver. I mean, that nose is huge, partly to accommodate this crumple zone, meaning that your driver yes. and your very expensive test train was mostly protected in a high-speed crash. So while you got a very expensive 
bill that you're going to have to pay while you buff it out, you're not losing the life of, at this point, two drivers because all trains at this point were still mandated to have two drivers by the union. The other thing as well with ABTE was it managed to shut down the British Rail Network for an entire day when a manager moved the train all in of about 600 yards to move it into the depot because it only had one driving seat rather than two driving seats because at this point unions mandated you had to have two drivers on board. This is historical. But all trains used to have two drivers on board, even though it was a modern, at this point, gas turbine train. This very interesting story of how APT was possibly the most expensive project British Rail ever had undertaken due to the costs of this one strike alone is a very interesting side story of unions and British Rail history. Even at at the early stages of development, a quote electric apt so an a was generally seen as the apts class would have been cheaper to operate than a standard hst set assuming the same mileage apts seated more people in its one plus 10 configuration than a standard two plus eight hst used just 0.6 kilowatt hours per mile of energy more than HST and had a total annual cost of £594 million versus £622 million for the HST. Its cost per seat mile was also lower at 37 pence per seat mile versus HST's 44 pence per seat mile. If anything, what we have proven here is that HST is just a worse train. Well, and that's because the HST in many ways, was a reaction against the APT. The APT was a novel concept. It grew out of aerospace design. Many of the traditionalists within British Rail's mechanical and engineering department were mistrustful of the APT project. And the HST, to a degree, grew out of an attempt by the mechanical engineers department to try and kill the apt by proving that what br wanted could be adequately achieved with a conventional train which is basically what the hst is yes it's got some nice brakes it's got some good air conditioning but realistically the mark three coach was already in development for loco haulage the Mark III is basically just a development on the Mark II in many ways, and it's just a pair of conventional locomotives sandwiched either side of a set of passenger cars. The most novel features of the HST are that it's got two power cars at each end with a push-pull control, but equally that's just a multiple unit, which we'd already seen, and the air conditioning and the braking that allowed it to stop from 125 miles an hour in the same distance or in fact, less of a distance than a conventional train could achieve. Yes. The other problem as well with HST and the reason the HST came to exist is also because the APT team was constituted of a lot of external people to the traditional mechanical engineering department. Yep. There were a lot of people brought in from aerospace, a lot of people brought in from the automobile space, and a lot of people who were not, uh, and a lot of, 
companies and contractors that were not traditionally contracted by British Rail used in its development. For example, the Leyland gas turbines were from a totally unheard of at that point company inside British Rail. They were very new and were completely against everything that British Rail had traditionally done up to that point, employing the same few people, employing the same trusted technologies. It was very much, we're taking a gamble, and this was not liked by the traditional chief engineer, well, mechanical engineering department. Yes. So why did the APT fail? Well, there's a few different reasons. Um, A lot of this comes... I th- a lot of this is, comes from opinions that I have formed while reading David Klaus, the day APT, The Untold Story, as well as some yep. other research I have done in the archives, as well as some research I have done from other books, including APT, A Promise Unfulfilled by uh, L. Williams, and some other interesting just things that I've yes. come across. And the first main point is that HST, APT's main rival, was led by business, not led by engineering. Very yes. safe engineering choices were made on HST, including the use of the Mark III coach, a very uninteresting, in many ways, diesel locomotive with a, essentially a cheese wedge bolted on the front of it. And that's the thing, it's like the, the coaches and locomotives are very boring. Yes. We don't even see things like proper powered doors on the exterior yes. of the carriages yes br made all sorts of fuss about having um underfloor detectors for the interior doors to open but we don't have automatic doors on the outside they're not even fitted with central locking mm. initially yeah it's it's an incredibly cheap traditional and in a business sense very safe train it is what they've yeah. tried before and know to work in many ways, a Mark III coach is just a 23-metre-long version of a Mark II coach. Yes, with some under undercarriage decals to hide the underfloor equipment and nothing else. And as we know now, HST has some very serious flaws. Obviously, the central locking was a big flaw that needed to be fixed because you could just open the door at 125 miles an hour. The driver is essentially unprotected to again borrow friend of the show yeah. gareth dennis's uh, description it is an upturned bathtub with a window it is not yes. safe whereas apt the experimental version had a very good crumple zone all things considered it's not modern by any standards like, no. it would not fly today but back then it was incredibly modern There was also a lack of direction within the departments that were making up the APT project. The main goal was obviously the high speed, but different new and unreliable technologies were being tried out. And this just made the APT very undesirable to the higher ups who just wanted a cheap, reliable and profitable machine, which again ties back into this question of should the railways be a public good or should they make a profit? And this is a question that we... I'm sure we will keep coming back to. And I think the eternal problem that British Rail had, which was it had to make a profit rather than just provide a service. Yes. Um, And that means that things like APT had political pressure to show results, even when they weren't actually 
possible. Yes. The next big issue as well was that the APT team was just torn apart by 1980 and funding and other resources were being withheld from them as early as the 1970s due to rounds of empire building and other rivalries within British Rail. I find it interesting how the APT team were, because they were reallocated to the carriage and wagon department. Yes. Um, where it was argued that they would continue to be a team and capable of developing the APT, but eventually ways were found to shift people to other projects and dilute the knowledge base of the team. Yes. And this ties into the carriage and wagon departments within BR. They didn't see the need for the totally revolutionary design of coach that APT had, let alone the power cars and other systems. The coach design in itself was totally revolutionary, deriving its design from aircraft and automobile construction more than Mm -hmm. from traditional coach building because you can trace direct lines between the uh, LMS coaches and the Mark III. It's a very similar construction. The other, and I think the biggest issue as well, was that the DFT and the Treasury saw it as a very expensive millstone around their necks that just wasn't producing results. Due to the poor revenue performance of the P-sets, the plans to build the U-sets, trailer sets early, were seen as completely pointless by the DFT, Instead, preferring the simplest solution of keep the 110 mile an hour 87 and Mark II and three sets in service uh, rather than build the U trailers and put an 87 on the front until we get the faster locomotive. In a June 83 memo to the Minister of Transport, the um, APT prototypes were described as symptomatic of BR's issues of running a railway. This ties very much into the attitude that the Thatcher government had yes. towards British Rail. Famously, Margaret Thatcher did not include British Rail in her tranche of privatisations, and that wasn't because she thought it should be some sort of public sector good, but actually because she believed it was so inherently expensive and pointless that no business would want to touch it with a barge pole. Yes. And so this idea that BR is just throwing taxpayers' money pointlessly down the drain ties very much into that attitude. It also ties into the the whole anyone on public transport has failed in life attitude held by the government at that stage. So the idea that BR is trying to invest in some sort of way to compete with the airlines, because Let's not deny it. That's what APT is all about. It's about competing with mm. the airlines, which obviously are the technology of them yeah. of today, the well, technology of the future. Competing with the trying airlines to compete and, uh, with that and the motorway, the private, the yeah. fast airline, and the private motor car. Exactly, and trying to compete with either of those two things is cynical, problematic. Yes. And we, I mean, we see that today where you have things like personal rapid transport and Hyperloop. Hyperloop being proposed as ways of maintaining individualized transport whilst clutching hopelessly at the mantle of being able to achieve the levels of capacity that actual mass transport mm. can achieve. Yes. However, APT, in my view, 
got the last laugh. It was actually a successful project in the end. What was supposed to become the APTU, that's the 2 plus 10 configuration with two power cars and 10 trailers, eventually evolved into what became known as the InCity 140 project in June 1983, and then eventually the InCity 225 project. The InCity 225 project dropped the requirements for tilt the APT had and reduced its top speed, meaning that the hydrokinetic brake could also be avoided, and instead traditional disc brakes could be used. And these essentially were nicked off the HST. And power for this train was to come from one of two designs. The prototype class 89 unit that was to use a new advanced electric traction system as compared to the traditional traction systems that were known at the time. Yep, so-called Aardvark, I believe they're known as, or it's known as. Yep, Aardvark, the Aardvark locomotive. And the alternative to that was the Class 90 and later Class 91 locomotive that was essentially based on the APTP and U power car. And the technology was much simpler than the Class 89 and was proven on some test models of the Class 87. What we know is the Class 90 yep. and 91 eventually won out, as we know. Yep. And the InCity 225 project, the trailer cars, the Mark IV coach, as they're now known, were based very heavily on the trailer cars for APTU. Yes. And very, uh, a lot of the early plans were essentially just build the APTU power cars with the tilt packs and everything and put a Class 91 on the front. However, obviously, as we know, the Mark IVs dropped the tilt required, the tilt, active tilt system from production. Yes. They do have a passive t- provision for tilt, which is why they look like that. But that initial requirement for tilting to be on the train from the get-go was dropped with the idea that it could potentially yes. be added later. What's quite interesting as well is an insurance policy against the InCity 225 project was known as HSTE which was essentially an electric HST. It was based on the same tech as the earlier Class 87, but by 1984, the project was dead because the Intercity 225 was seen as the future and the direction British Rail had to go. Yes, because the HST fitted the need for diesel trains. And then you already had, as we've already mentioned, you already had the Class 86s and 87s Mm. running with Mark 2s and Mark 3s on the West Coast Main Line. And then the East Coast electrification in the late 80s, early 90s happens at just that point that, as Ellis just said, the APT project produced something functional in the form of the Intercity 225 or, as they were branded, the Electra sets. I do love that brand name. It is a wonderful name. And while they aren't exactly the same, obviously the APTU sets were not identical to a mark IV, the lineage is very much there and the archives very strongly suggest the lineage is there and it is very clear that these sets are built on the aptu design now does that mean that they are apt no no but they are very much based on the technology and the the many years of development that went into apt as a whole and that is a look at APT. Now, there is a lot we've not covered here. There is a lot that we can still go into. There will be other episodes on 
the APT and aspects of it. Yes. Um, because... As Ella's already said, the bonus episode is going to be looking at um, the signaling and some of the other systems that didn't happen in a bit more detail. Uh, but yes. thank you for joining us for this. Thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you very yes. much for joining us for this look at the APT. This episode has taken many hours to produce in research, and the research into it is still ongoing because Ella has periodically been sending me crying messages about how hard the research for this episode is. There is a lot of stuff where things just kind of disappear, paper trails dry up, and so many questions are left unanswered. And it has been very hard to pull some of the information in this episode, mostly relating to this signalling and other aspects relating to the fate of APT and the APTU sets. If you want to help make these episodes possible and make this massive time investment actually more justifiable than it is, we would both be very grateful if you could join our current singular patron on Patreon. If you head over to patreon.com forward slash rails to nowhere, there are several tiers to choose from. They all get you yes. interesting things. They get you interesting Slightly things. different things. If you join at the library ticket level for just £2 a month, you get bonus episodes, early access to the main episodes, and an extra content blog. So it's actually quite a lot for your money. If you drop £5 a month and join the, the archive table, you will get bonus episodes every month. Early access to the main episodes, the upcoming content blocks, so a a sneak behind the scenes at what we're doing, potentially even input into the episodes, and the extra content block. And if you really like this show and want to join us in the restricted section, which is all the secret part, you will get access to bonus episodes, early access to episodes, the Patreon AMA, a shout-out at the end of the episodes, the upcoming content blog, and the extra content blog. So we hope you will enjoy and hopefully will help keep us online and help make this work and help with the research. Thank you for listening. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Rails to Nowhere. Follow the podcast on your favorite podcast app and please do consider supporting us on Patreon because boy, is this a difficult thing to do sometimes. As Uh, If you're interested in any of the resources we have used in this episode, look at the description or the episode show notes. You will find a bibliography of all the resources used. And hopefully, you will be joining us in the Patreon bonus episode to talk about signalling. And if not, hopefully you'll be joining us for next month's episode, which is undetermined. With, With that... Thank you. Good thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.